and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. The scripture reading today comes from John 1, 35 through 46, and I'll be reading from the NLT version. The following day, John was again standing with his two, his, two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want, he asked them. And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to a place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the men who had heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida and Andrew in Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks, buddy. Also, thanks for getting that reverend thing started. That was cool. It's great. It's really been a fun thing to do with you guys. Um, hey, how are you? Uh, if I don't know you, I'm Lindsay. I'm the pastor here, and we're really glad you're here if you're new with us. Um, I also want to take a minute and um, talk just like two sentences about what we talked about last week, just in case we missed you last week. Um, but we are in a season of epiphany here. At, well, not just here at Springbrook, uh, all over the church, all over the world is a season of epiphany, um, which is a season of like fresh light and uh, revelation and new eyes on old stories. Um, and so what we're doing is over the next few weeks is we are, are trying to do that exact thing. We're trying to look at old stories that may be really familiar to uh, a lot of you and, and give them new eyes to, to see what God might have for us uh, in these same stories. And so we're going to do that today. We're, we'll talk about the story that uh, Johnny just read um, uh, about some of Jesus's first followers. But, but first, before I do that, uh, I want to tell you a story. And it's one I've already told before, but don't stop me because it's good. Um, that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> you were, were like, you tell the same stories over and over again, so we don't stop you. Um, but when I was in college, uh, my friend Wody decided to run a marathon. And um, has anyone here done that? D, I assume you have. Yes. Anyone else? Raise those hands proud. Listen. Oh, yes, the graphs, of course, both of you have. Oh, my gosh. 
Have you done a half marathon? I'll count it as a whole one. The other people won't, but, but I will. Um, okay, so, so we, have, we have like five-ish people who have run a whole, a whole marathon is 26 miles in a row. Point two, 26.2 miles in a row, all at the same time. Do you know that? And, and my guess is that, that if, you've, if you've decided to run a marathon, um, some, some stuff shifted in your life in order to make uh, that possible. Like, my guess is in order to do that, you probably, like, practiced. You know, you trained for months, I would say maybe years. Uh, maybe you had to qualify to get into the marathon uh, that you ran. Dee's nodding her head, so I'm assuming these are correct. I shockingly have never run a marathon. Um, but you worked hard. You worked hard to build strength and to build endurance and, and work your way uh, into this marathon. We can agree that this is like the general way that someone would run a marathon, right? You'd get inspired, then you would put in the work, and then you would run said marathon. But for my friend Wody, the process was a little bit different than that. Um, the beginning was the same. Uh, he, did, he did have a moment of inspiration. Um, the story goes that uh, Wody was in a small group in college. Uh, plug for small groups. Um, also, pause. Uh, I've had some questions because we have donuts and coffee out there for becoming a mega church. Again, no, um, because mega churches sound like works 100% of the time, I think. So we can't do it. Anyway. Okay, so plug for small groups. So my friend Wody uh, is, is <laughs> thanks, Tracy. My friend Wody's in a small group. And in this small group, um, some, I don't know if it's like he's asking for prayer or something, but he's like, I'm trying to figure out, I think I might want to run a marathon. And, and he, he's like discerning this process if he wants to, to run a marathon. And um, my friend Wody uh, says, I could run a marathon. And everyone in the circle laughed at him, um, which is not kind but it is true. Um, so like, if you were to close your eyes, you can do this right now and picture a marathon runner in your mind and then maybe picture the exact opposite. That is Wody. Like, um, he's 6'3", uh, 6'4", at the time, maybe 300 pounds. And, and he's, he's not a, he's not, he's, if you picture like a long lean marathon runner, he's more of like an offensive lineman. Like that is his general build. And so people are, are laughing at him. Um, also, this is not, I don't know how college was for you, uh, but for him, uh, this is not like a, a, pre, a peak prime physical fitness time. In his life. You know, this is just like eating a lot of Taco Bell and sleeping never and running on Red Bull time. You know, um, maybe your college was different. Um, but uh, so he's not in this peak physical condition. So that, and, and that does feel important if you're going to run 26.2 miles in a row at the same time. Right? And so when he says, I can run a marathon, everybody uh, in the circle is like, no, you can't. Like, absolutely, you cannot. And he responds and says, um, like, like, their laughter and their lack of faith in him just makes him double down. And so then he says, not only I could run a marathon, he says, I could run a marathon today. Today. And his friends were like, there's absolutely no way. And he said, yes, I can. And I will watch me. And they said, okay, do it today. And so this is what he says. He says, I'll run a marathon today. The only thing I need to do is go change my shoes. That's it. This man has not trained for one single minute. And he thinks that the only thing between him and 26.2 miles on foot is a shoe change. Like, that's it. That's, that's what he thinks. Um, the, the wrong shoes are the only thing keeping him from doing this. So, 
around the table, bets start coming in. And, um, and by the end, when Wody's walking out the door to get his shoes, there's hundreds of dollars on the table saying um, that he cannot, like, if you run this marathon, you get hundreds of dollars. And they set up one stipulation. You have to do it today, and you have to do it in seven hours. And so just um, for your reference, uh, the Google says that an average marathon time is four minutes and 21 seconds for a man. That's not the fastest. That's not the slowest. That's, that's like according to Google. Okay. Um, so how, hours, did I say minutes? Well, whoops. Um, <laughs> hours. Hours. So four minutes, four hours, goodness, four hours, 21 minutes. They give him seven. So he's got a buffer, you know. So if he can complete 26.2 miles in seven hours, he gets his money. Wody walks out of the room 100% confident that he uh, can make this happen. And so he goes and he gets his shoes. Um, and then somebody else goes and picks up like a pack of waters. And then one kind friend went to runner's market and got the goo stuff. Do you know what I'm talking about? Runner goo, because they're like, what does he need? Goo. And so they got some of that, and they all show up. They meet at Lakeshore Park in Knoxville uh, like an hour later. And at this point, the crowd is bigger than the small group because everybody has texted someone and is like, Wody said he could run a marathon today. You have got to come see this. Like, come on. And so the crowd has gotten bigger. And so the people position themselves along the loop um, at Lakeshore. And the loop at at Lakeshore is about two miles. So they agree that Wody will run it 13 times and get to this one specific line. And that will be a marathon. So um, they they position themselves all around the loop so they can like cheer him on and check on him and see if he's alive, you know. And so they're they're all around and and he uh, takes off. And he starts running. And um, so Wody being an an all-natural, completely untrained athlete, uh, he, uh, with plenty of wiggle room in his seven-hour time, he begins his race with the strategy that he will walk the hills and run the straights. And if you've been to Lakeshore, it's a lot of hills, right? So he's going to walk the hills and he's going to run the straights. And (laughs) And he gets to the top of the first hill of the first lap on the first mile and realize that timing wise, it will be impossible for him to complete this in seven hours by walking up these mountains. And so he's going to have to run. And uh, I don't, I, again, I haven't trained for a marathon, but I feel like hill one of mile one of loop one is a really unfortunate time to realize that your entire strategy will not work. You know, so that's what we're talking about. But he, but he keeps going. He keeps running. He gets through loop one. Uh, he gets through loop two. The crowd is growing a bit. You know, people are telling people, come and see this. Uh, it's growing a bit. Uh, loop three, and, and he's still going. And he's gooing up all the time. He's pounding waters. Um, he's six miles in on an untrained body and, um, and some eyewitnesses have told me that they've, they've never seen a man in so much pain and his legs are hurting and he's bleeding in places he would rather not be bleeding. You can Google it. Um, but he keeps on going. And then sometime, sometime around the middle of loop four, he starts limping <laughs> and he's hurting so, so bad. And then toward the end of that same loop, when he gets to mile number eight, the story goes that he threw his hands in the air and said, I'm done, and walked to his car silently, got in his car, and drove away (laughs) on on mile eight. He throws in the towel, losing hundreds of dollars in winnings and, and his pride. He just quit 
walked to the car and drove home. And the next day, the doctor gave him some great advice on how he could uh, 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 treat his very severe shin splints and his incredibly chafed body. Um, The next day, he also ordered uh, one of those stickers that says 26.2. You know, like the white circle, the black sticker. And he ordered it. He put it on his car. And his friends were like, you can't do that. And he said, yes, I can. And they said, no, you can't. You didn't run a marathon. And he said, incorrect. I absolutely ran a marathon. I did not complete a marathon. And so that sticker got slapped to his car as an Ebenezer uh, luring curious people to come and see the man who almost ran a marathon in a day filled not with training or endurance, but with the arrogance of youth and the gnarliest of shin splints. (laughs) And I don't think it says on his car today, but it did for a really long time. So at the risk of the worst preacher transition of all time, our scripture today also has some come and see moments. (laughs) You ever just need to laugh so you tell your favorite story? Today. um, So John's story that Johnny read us uh, picks up. uh, In John chapter 1, there's there's revival going on in Israel. The uh, people are, are, are... repenting. They're getting baptized with John the Baptist. This whole ministry uh, with him is happening there. Um, and they're hearing from their friends and, and they're showing up. Their friends are like, you need to see what this guy's about. And they're showing up and they're seeing this guy, John the Baptist. Um, and then John the Baptist is standing with some of his followers and uh, Jesus walks by. And uh, based on what John the Baptist says about Jesus, two of those followers, uh, who we find out later in the text are Andrew and uh, most likely John, the, the writer of the story. Um, they, based on what John says about Jesus, uh, Andrew and John follow him. And they just sort of like follow around behind him. And, and Jesus turns around to see them uh, following him. And he speaks the first words that he says in the book of John. Uh, and it's not lost on me that that his first words in the book of John are a question, uh, but not just any question. Uh, I would argue it's a big question and one we find Jesus asking a lot. He turns around and he says, what do you want? Uh, other translations say, what are you looking for? Or, or the message uh, says, what are you after? Uh, it's, it's a pointed question. And, and they respond to Jesus with their own question. Uh, they say, where are you staying? Like, where do you live? Where do you come from? I think their question, when I imagine it in the story, is um, it feels like one of context. Is essentially they're like, uh, what kind of box do we put you in? Like, what organization are you a part of? Or, or um, what, John called you the Lamb of God, but like, do you have a house? And who do you work with? And, and, and what kind of box can we put you in? And Jesus replies in a very much Jesus way to their question. And he says, come and see. Come and see for yourselves uh, how to answer your own question. And I'm just curious uh, how many of you would, would, if someone walked up behind you and was following you closely enough that you turned around and said, what do you want? And they were to say, where do you live? Would you also reply, come and see? You know, I don't know. I wouldn't. Um, Okay, so John uh, tells these men, uh, these two, come and see, and and they do it. Uh, They take, or Jesus, not John, Jesus. They take Jesus up on his offer uh, and, and they follow him. And John tells us that they stayed with him all day. 
And there's something about staying with Jesus that seems to change the course of their life in a really uh, significant way. So I want to talk just for a minute, stop here just for a minute and talk about the word uh, stay or the word that the NLT translated in our scripture to remain. They remained with him all day. The Greek word here uh, is meno, M-E-N-O, meno. And it means that. It means stay or, or remain, uh, linger, uh, to tarry, to endure, to abide with. Uh, my favorite definition I read this week for it was uh, to make yourself at home. Like you're staying. You're making yourself at home in something. And, and this word minnow, it's an incredibly important word for John uh, because it doesn't just show up here in our story in John chapter 1. It's a word that also shows up like all throughout the book of John. Uh, And we talked at Christmas Eve about how John is like a master of words. Like, I think he is such a profound and an intentional writer. And he chooses really good words in his whole story. And and he chooses those words very much on purpose. And so this word minnow in John's gospel shows up 34 times. There aren't even 34 chapters. Like 34 times uh, John makes reference to minnowing, to abiding, to enduring, to making yourself at home. Uh, minnowing or abiding seems to be one of the, the like key ways or most direct ways that, that John seems to understand humanity's connection with Jesus. To John, it seems to be a significant part of the Christian life to minnow with God, to be with God, to make yourself at home uh, with God. Uh, we kind of talked about this last week about how God uh, wants to be known by us, not just believed in by us. And I think there's a significant part of knowing that comes from minnowing. Like it's very hard to know something you haven't lingered with, you haven't put in the time. Like, like there are people I know and then there are people who, uh, who have cooked in my kitchen. Does that make sense? Like there's something very intimate about knowing somebody's kitchen. Like if you have lingered at my house enough to learn where I keep my spoons and my Tupperware and my spices and my secret Tupperware, um, we know each other well, right? Like that's an intimate knowledge. If you know my kitchen, we've minnowed, we've abided, we've made ourselves at home with one another. I, I think that John would argue, I think John does argue that a flourishing Christian life requires submitting, the the work of like submitting and lingering and enduring, the work of minnowing and abiding. Uh, And so I would be curious uh, to know, is, is minnowing a significant part of how you relate to Jesus or how you connect to God? Like um, when you think about it, uh, do words like abide or endure or tarry or linger or making yourself at home, do those sound like words you would describe your connection with God? Just curious. Uh, so uh, Andrew and John, they spend the day. They minnow. They make themselves at home with Jesus. And what happens next is uh, interesting to me. Um, because while minnowing seems to be crucial uh, to the essence of, of flourishing connection with Jesus, it isn't the whole of it. It isn't their whole experience. Uh, John, the writer, tells us that Andrew goes and finds his brother. And he tells his brother, we found the Messiah or we found the Christ. Like the, the, the one we've been waiting on, we found him. 
And so Andrew brings his brother Simon to meet Jesus. He brings his brother Simon to minnow with Jesus as well. And in their time, Jesus uh, changes Simon's name to Peter uh, because, and maybe this is a preacher stretch, but there's something about abiding with God that often brings out something new in us. And that happens for Peter. And then John continues telling the story with Jesus uh, where he goes to a new town and he meets Philip and we see a very similar cycle. Uh, Jesus gives Philip a a really similar invitation to come and see. He says, come and follow. And uh, something about Philip's witness with Jesus makes him go and find Nathaniel. And he says, you got to come meet this person from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And I love a Bible burn and that's what it is. And then Philip says, uh, come and see, come and see for yourself. And there's a cycle to this text uh, that a preacher I love named Rich Viotis calls the essence of Christian spirituality. It's like this cycle of being found by Christ and abiding or minnowing with him and then finding people to be found by Christ, to abide and minnow uh, with him. It's this cycle that we're always, we're always being found by Christ. We're not found once, we're always being found by him. And then there's something about always going out and finding others to be found by him. There's, there's something about abiding and minnowing that can't be uh, contained by just us. Like it's something that also has to be given back out into the world. It's like the good news that we find in abiding is for us, but it's also something bigger than us. It's something in us, but there's also something in the good news of Jesus and his kingdom that also is for the places where we live and work and learn and play. And so we find ourselves saying, come see, come see. Uh, Frederick Bigner, who I quote every week, uh, calls this statement, the only answer he has for people who are curious of the things of God are true. Uh, come and see. He says, that is the, I think we've got a quote for this um, uh, Misty, uh, that is the only, he's, come and see, he says, that is the only answer I know for people who want to find out whether or not this is true. Come all ye faithful and all ye who would like to be faithful, if only you could. All ye who walk in darkness and hunger and light have faith enough, hope enough, despair enough, foolishness enough, at least to draw near to see for yourselves. He has said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Uh, there's something about Christian uh, spirituality, that, that uh, invitation to us and by us is come and see. And I've been in a lot of churches and a lot, been to a lot of conferences and heard a lot of speakers, uh, gone to retreats where we turn this cycle into like this high pressure situation where Jesus followers are like supposed to sell people on Jesus. That that's our job. Like we're supposed to market him in a way that is incredibly exciting and then sell him everywhere we go. And it's like this panicked, anxious idea that if we don't sell Jesus, nobody's going to sell him. He's going to go to the scratch and dent sale or something. I don't know. And the older I get, the more that feels like complete baloney uh, to me. No offense, daddy loves baloney. Um, But no one, no one had like, no one had to be a salesman for Wody running a marathon, Right. Like, all you had to say is, a man who weighs 300 pounds is going to run a marathon in seven hours. Come see. And everyone's like, okay. You know, like, like being the only answer that I know for people to find out whether any of this is true or not uh, is this. uh, Come and see. Come and see for yourselves. Jesus is not something we're selling. He isn't something that we have to market. He is something uh, active that can be seen and found and lingered in. 
And so when it comes to finding people to be found, um, I'm confident of two things as we close up. The first is this. Uh, we don't bring God anywhere. Like, like God is already everywhere all on his own. We don't have some like access card that he doesn't have so we can get him in to the very fun places we go. Like that isn't how it works. Our job isn't to bring God to the places where we live and work and learn and play. He's already there. Rather, our job is to notice, to have eyes to see what he's up to, and then to ask him for the courage to join in the work he's already doing. Uh, we, we prayed, that first prayer that we prayed during worship was written by Martin Luther King Jr. And that's what he's asking for, the courage to join in, to be, become the person he wants to be. This is it. Our, 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 our God is present and he is working all around you where you live and work and learn and play. Your job is to find him there, to notice him there. You don't have to bring God to your coworker. He is already at work in your coworker's life. Uh, and he's inviting you to come and see what is he doing in their life. Your job uh, is not one of panic. It's one of presence, of curiosity, of noticing. It's a job of declaring good news wherever you see it and then working for it or praying for it in the places that you think it's missing. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Uh, God loves to find and he loves to be found. Uh, the invitation of the very first followers uh, to their siblings and friends is so simple. Come and see. Because I think what they learn in abiding with Jesus is that God delights in being discovered. Uh, Beekner said in his quote, it's, it's scripture, ask for more of him and he'll give it to you. Seek him and you'll find him. Uh, to quote my friend Seth Bouchel, who I quote a lot, but he's in the room today, so it's a little weirder to quote him says this, discovery and seeking are integral, integral to the way Jesus forms his people and a never-ending part of how leaders in his church are developed. Discovery and seeking, they are integral to the way that Jesus does things, a never-ending part to the way we're developed. And so I think we, the church, me, us, we have made Christianity so unbelievably complex. And in a lot of ways it is. Um, but the essence of it is quite simple. There is much of the essence of, of our formation that comes from this cycle of, of being found, of spending long time minnowing and then finding others and inviting them to be found and spend long time lingering. So here's what I want to do. Um, we do something every week we call Selah. The band can come on up for it. Um, it's a word we stole from the Psalms, um, and nobody is like 100% sure what it means, so we all just like add these definitions on it. But in the Psalms, it says Selah, it'll be like a stanza, and then it'll say Selah, and it essentially functions like this pause, like this quiet, holy moment in between two things, so you don't move too quickly from one thing to the next thing. And so every Sunday, we try to do that. We just build a quiet minute right in the middle of our service, um, and sometimes it's open and free, then sometimes we boss you around and tell you what to do. And today's going to be one of those days. I, I want to do a little bit of a practice together on the idea of abiding. Um, and here's what I want to do. I, I want, for the next few minutes, um, would you consider two questions? Um, these are questions I visit a lot, especially at the beginning of the year. I try to do it a, at a couple points during the year because uh, my answers can change. But the two questions are this. Um, what is it that draws you to Jesus or like stirs your affection 
to Jesus? What is it that like makes you want to minnow with Jesus? What are the things in your life that do that? Uh, and then the second question is the antithesis. Uh, what is it that um, robs your affection for Jesus? What is it that, that sends you in the complete opposite direction? And, um, and let's just spend a minute. Maybe those answers are really easy for you. Maybe they're tricky. Um, here's some examples. For me, um, the, on the stir side, things that stir my affection for Jesus are um, meals around the table with people I love, and there's a lot of laughing. Like few things draw me to Jesus quite like that. Um, I like to walk early in the morning or late in the evening when um, it's kind of cold, very cold these days, uh, and there aren't a lot of people. Uh, that stirs my affection for Jesus. Uh, this is one, this is maybe a shock, but grief lately. Like I have been getting to know the God quite acquainted with grief. And so for me, there's something about grief that draws me into that. Like, I, I don't really want to make my home here, but if I have to, will you come with me? You know, that kind of stirring. Um, for the other side, robbing, uh, for me is uh, the number one answer that's forever is boredom. Like I'm bad when I'm bored. Um, and so for me, boarding looks like binging on reels and Netflix and all kinds of, like, boredom is not my friend when it comes to it. It robs my affection from Jesus. Uh, I don't know. You fill in your own blanks. Uh, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and bless it, and we'll just spend a few minutes there in this moment. What stirs your affection for Jesus? What robs your affection of Jesus? So God, uh, we are maybe overwhelmed and also grateful for an invitation to come and see what you're about. And I pray that um, you would do work in us that reminds us um, that that's not just like a one-time thing. We're not just like found once by you. Um, abiding means being found over and over and over again. And so I pray in these next few minutes, would you give us eyes to see how that works out in our life? Maybe this is like the first time we've ever thought about this, but what is it that stirs our affections for you? And, and where is it that we feel ourselves wanting to run the opposite way? And then we pray.